Hey guys, this is Mark with Bonsai Southeast. On this episode, we sat down with Jonas Dupuy, discussed his new book, The Little Book of Bonsai. We also discussed different species that are native to both our and his area, a few different techniques with Japanese black pine. Stick around, check it out. recently than you know being in college or you know or anything like that uh it's it's been a pretty awesome little uh experience going through and managing this bonsai nursery and making all those connections with the local community and stuff and just finding all the other people out there that do it you know it's it's pretty gratifying so um that's awesome yep and now i get to do this and make this podcast and uh this is pretty cool too so uh yeah, we're already recording, so we're just going to kind of pick it up in the middle wherever wherever it feels like it organically flows. Uh, so this is this is Bonsai Southeast. This is a podcast for mostly beginners uh, type techniques that you use for a bonsai, uh, backyard growers, or just introductory introductory type things. Um, and we like to concentrate on uh, North American natives. And so you had posted a uh, article recently on Bonsai Tonight. Um, about acerubrum, and I thought that was pretty interesting because not a lot of people talk about that species and, uh, and do do it pretty often, honestly, uh, especially in the southeast range uh, because of all kinds of different things as far as oversized leaves or uh, really unsightly leaf blight, kind of spotting on the leaves. Uh, but I think there's a lot of good things about the species, on, in my personal opinion. But I think it's really cool that you would bring that up in your own in your own blog post talking about them that uh it made me feel better about believing in the species so tell me uh tell me your take on them uh, i like that little forest planting you had too so oh thanks i'm brand new to the species myself a friend of mine had had been growing that tree for a very long time his father actually collected those trees from a swamp in florida back in the mid early 80s and he's been growing it as a bonsai that whole time and what he told me is that the trunks would kind of grow up and then die off. New shoots would come out from the base again, and it would just kind of keep repeating itself. And when he got to the point where he was ready for someone else to care for the tree, I took it over and have not even had it a year yet, but have been having a ton of fun with it. So you're finding that it's more of a suckering species to kind of deal with? Well, that's how it was described. It's not that I see lots of suckers. It's that for whatever reason, it either it went through a cycle or it went through some trauma that killed off the top. But the tree was strong enough to push those lower shoots. Have you seen the same kind of thing? I had a it wasn't a collected piece, but it was a kind of hand me down nursery landscape nursery uh, red maple that I had found. And yeah, it, it had been chopped back for whatever reason. Whenever I got my hands on it, I was like, this would make great bonsai material. Just from the interest and thickness of the trunk, it was actually uh, a good size. But yeah, there was a lot of suckering from the bottom. Oh, um, nice. And so I'm fi- finding that red maple or acerubrum to be very precise about the species uh, in general. It just doesn't, decompart- it doesn't compartmentalize, compartmentalize very well. So I think that's just kind of the take on it. It's kind of like American hornbeams where... It's better just to start from seed or field-grown stock and make your chops in the ground and kind of work your way up from there. That's what I'm kind of finding with them. Um, but uh, that's the only only acer that you or acer rubrum that you've worked with. Yeah, I actually don't see a lot in California. People grow a lot of the really traditional species out here, whether in the landscape or for bonsai. And when we branch out of the norms, I'll see. Uh, 
oh, I forget the name, but a couple other maples, but not the domestic ones as much out here. And that's probably because we don't have the weather or um, or at least we have other trees that grow well in the weather out this way. So, no, I have not seen many as bonsai out here. Hmm. Okay. I that- planted one in my yard on a, in a rental property. And I was like, I'm going to dig it back up in a couple of years. And I went oh, back nice. to get it and it's too big. Yeah, they grow pretty fast here. Um, if you don't watch them, they'll get away from you, and they can achieve a pretty girthy trunk size. And uh, and chopping them is the only way to get them down. But like like I said, you might have to just keep in the ground for that. For yeah, that but keep an eye on them because they'll they'll explode. Yeah, and they uh, they backbud very very well here in the ground. So I guess it like that suckering nature. If you do chop them to a stump, it's mostly suckering uh, off the old roots and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. So I'm not entirely sure where you're at in California. I know a, the general vicinity because give us a little bit of a layout where you're at and what uh, what species work really well for you, just so we can get a better feeling. Oh, definitely. I'm in um, Alameda, California, which is just a couple miles due east of San Francisco. So Northern California, not far from the coast. The city's actually an island, and so I'm not too uh, in the uh, San Francisco Bay. So I'm not too far away from water okay so would you describe it a little bit more coastal feeling then definitely if you're in an island kind of environment so uh, yeah well what's funny is the uh northern california especially the bay area is well known or at least made fun of for having lots of microclimates and it's very real the weather can be completely different just one or two miles away um Mm -hmm. in fact just this morning a friend stopped by today the high was about 58 degrees and it was cloudy all day long, whereas 15 minutes away, it was 10 to 15 degrees warmer and sunny. Oh, okay. And y'all are still relatively cool outside then. Yeah. I, well, it was 87, 88 degrees a week ago. And so mm. this week it's super cold. And this is a weird time of year for us because the next two months we could have fog every day or we could have sun and heat every day. And so far, it's been a very cool spring, and so we're not seeing half as much growth as we normally do in the garden. Yeah, and I, I didn't even think that because um, we were going to talk. We we're going to talk about how like we were jealous of your growing oh, environment yeah. out that way because that's like California is like the birthplace of North American bonsai. Um, as far as I'm, I've, I've heard from like kind of like tra- tracing back to John Naka and Benoki days, yeah. um, and I was like, man, we should be jealous about your grow environment, but it sounds like it's very similar to ours. Like it was uh, 80 degrees today, but um, let's say like yesterday it was high of 70. It was like fo- it was like 40 degrees the other night. It's been really crazy over here too. Um, and it keeps coming up in conversation with that winter storm. How was that winter storm for you guys on the coast? Well, so we don't get winter over here and we've barely even got any precipitation the last two years. I think we received about eight inches of rain a year for the last two years. And all of the rain falls, like it hasn't rained in a couple months at this point. All the rain falls typically November through March. And oh. it's pretty much desert the whole rest of the year. See, you can you can totally tell I don't even have, I don't have any idea what Northern California is like. Because I'm like, hey, how was that winter storm? And it was like, I didn't think about it. But it totally just like went straight past y'all going uh, southeast towards us. Yeah, so. sometimes they clip. <laughs> sometimes they come out of Canada. Sometimes they'll clip... Uh, Washington or even Oregon sometimes, but we get these uh, big high pressure systems in this part of the state and the jet stream goes around us. And so we, uh, that's what's led to a lot of dry weather the last few years. Mm-hmm. But in an entire, like, I don't know that we had a single freezing temperature all last winter. 
that's I would say that's a pretty ideal growing environment. And we're talking about microclimates because um, I'm on what's considered. Are you familiar with the way Louisiana is laid out? Have you? Yeah. Have you okay, so you got the lake, and then um, I'm on the North Shore, and you're talking about microclimates. Uh, Mark over here, we're actually down at his house on the South Shore, and you do see that ten that ten degree difference, just like you said, um, which. We don't. We're not as spotty, I guess, as you, as you guys would be then. So like how it's completely different in some zones that are like only miles away. Uh, but I do know what you mean by that, and I get kind of envious of people who come up to the, the nursery is on the North Shore, and they're always like, uh, yeah, I want to work with X tree. Do I have to worry about it during you know the winter the winter cold? And I'm like, you're down in the city, aren't you? And they're like, yeah, I live in New Orleans. I'm like, then <laughs> I don't even know why I'm having this conversation. Just just put your tree on the ground if you feel really, you know, if you're worried worried about it, or put it in your garage. You'll be fine. Uh, so, it, it's how kind of that How does that, that thing. Uh, affect the dormancy of your deciduous trees? Well, so it actually affects the dormancy of a lot of species, and that's one of the bigger challenges we face. I actually winter a number of my a number of my trees at a friend's house up in the mountains, so they can get some uh, freezing temperatures. And it's funny; everyone in the country pretty much has zone envy one way or the other. There's something good or bad about where everyone is, and. Uh, one of the things we face is that variability. And so some deciduous trees do absolutely fine around here. Others do better when they can actually go to sleep for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I have trouble with Japanese maple. Certain species of them, they'll pop in and out of dormancy through the winter. And uh, yeah. trying to figure out some techniques to use. That guy, uh, Pat, was telling me put some ice cubes, water with ice oh, cubes. Oh, yeah, that was kind of <laughs> weird. We I didn't know whether to believe him or not, but I mean. We were at a bonsai show not too long ago uh, last weekend, and somebody said that. Do you have you had any experience with that? Like ice cubes, like how? So how I don't know if that's going to make a whole lot of difference, um, but I can take it one step further. Um, what I usually do is when most of the leaves look bad, I'll take off all the leaves. And if all the leaves look perfectly fine, right around Christmas time, I'll just take off all the leaves, at least to force it to be, even if it's kind of de facto dormant for a little while, and then it'll just kind of start leafing out again pretty much right away. But I do have a few friends who are experimenting with putting trees in refrigerators over winter. That's one thing I keep hearing about, like the, I just think about uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull when he's in that refrigerator and the nuke goes off. I'm just like, that. that is your... I don't know. Has Does it, does it work? It just seems really silly to me. Like, uh, it's... It seems really experimental out, and it's out there for me. Like if we wanted to keep like a one seed juniper, a rocky seed, rocky mountain juniper, or like a ponderosa pine here in Louisiana, uh, someone said that someone suggested a refrigerator uh, technique like that. And like, you know, does it work? Hey, if you've got space in a fridge, I'd give it a try. Uh, the main thing <laughs> is that you watch the uh, water and uh, just make sure the electric bills aren't crazy. I'll be worried to dry the tree out. Yeah, because yeah, that's why you've got to take it out and water it. And so I know a couple of people that have left trees in, even if it's only for a month, that might be long enough to give it the chill hours it needs to break dormancy. If you haven't read it yet, check out Michael Hagedorn's recent book. Um, oh, it has a fantastic uh, couple chapters on dormancy and all of the mechanisms that trees go through, both to enter dormancy and to exit dormancy. And I think it's a um, really good. It's kind of the best description I know of that kind of helps us bonsai folk figure out what might work for our trees. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I've actually read that book, um, and it's an excellent, you know, excellent way to look at it. And uh, 
he puts a lot of a lot of stuff into modern terms. Uh, very it's very digestible. And I remember that chapter um, saying that I, I like the part where he put the trees underneath the board. He dug a hole in the ground and put the the trees under the board, and the critters all ate his trees up. Um, I was just like, that's just the consequences of stuff doing doing it that way. Um, it's making me think about the refrigerator thing again. It's like you can you can moderate that pretty well. I mean, that's a temperature you can control, just like your AC yeah. and your thermostat. You know, yeah. Right? So there's a couple so. different ways to do it, and so often to break dormancy, trees need a certain amount of hours at the temperature between 32 and 40 degrees. And so if they drop under freezing, the clock usually stops. And so it's that slightly above freezing zone that's so helpful. And I know one guy's actually experimenting in Israel trying to use the refrigerator at night, but not during the day. Mm. And so do it periodically and see if you can rack up your chill hours that way. And so he had a what, you know, it's it's a newish experiment, but he did uh, quite a bit of that this last season. And I think uh, more is coming up for the future. But I'm just kind of dying to know how all these play out. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of bone size shuffling around, honestly, because uh, we do a lot of that here. Uh, how much uh, freezing do you get where you are? Um, dude, it's it's really weird over here. So. Some years it'll be one hard freeze and we'll be like, all right, well, we just hope that the temperature stays below 40 degrees long enough to break the dormancy for our deciduous trees. Um, and, it, and it normally does. And a lot of our natives are very tolerant of that, especially like bald cypress and stuff like that. Um, but then other years we've gotten six inches of snow, um, which is really odd. And it's only, it snows, I, I would say like, once every eight years? Once every eight years. Eight one, six. And it seems like it's it's getting closer and closer every time that it does snow. Um, but yeah, it's it's a pretty radical winter for us in the southeast, honestly. Um, so it's odd to hear about you struggling with dormancy. Because um, it almost sounds like Florida, Florida a little bit. It's, yeah, it can be. And so when you mentioned the, you know, so much... California bonsai history, that's primarily Southern California, though there were some prominent mm -hmm. Japanese Americans teaching up in Northern California, but completely different weather. That mild beach-like weather that's year-round, that's Southern California. Whereas we get these ridiculously cold summers and we often get a uh, fall is typically the warmest month of the year for us, uh, September. Our hottest days are often clocked in September or October. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's why you deal with a lot of Japanese black pine. Makes it easier to deal with them, correct? And does it... They, yeah, they happen to do well in most of the climates in Northern California, whether uh, up in the mountains or down lower here. But some of the inland areas get really, really hot. And I know some people struggle with them when it's you know up 100, 105 every day for weeks at a time with low humidity. Uh, where it's a little bit different, we're... 100 degrees but 100 percent humidity here and that's where i'm yeah. kind of that's where i'm kind of like trying to weigh this thing with the, the japanese black pines like we had talked about recently um and i i'm kind of like i'm going into it the second year and my my ceilings have gone from that first stage because i've watched your video with uh bonsai empire a couple of times just kind of there's a little refresher so i can see the step one step two it's very the visuals are really great in that video um, and so I have gotten to that, that two to three year. So they're about, they're reaching that thumb size and their, their candles are really starting to get out there, but I'm starting to get those little whirls on the top of, uh, of branches. And we had talked about that and it's just as simple as eliminating 
what what I really just don't want, you know, if I want to assign a new trunk line or something. But uh, less about that, but more about, I don't know how you would feel about like a hundred, like a hundred degrees, a hundred percent humidity. Do you think that's something that could cause issues with us with black pines here? What you do is you just start paying attention to see if it does cause issues. I think that humidity is fantastic for just about every single species that's common for bonsai. So that I don't worry as much about, though you do have to pay attention for fungal pathogens. You don't want to water later in the day and you want to be looking out for the first signs of any foliar uh, fungus attacks, whether a needle cast on a pine or a blight on a juniper, something like that, or any of the different spotted things you can get on deciduous trees. But in terms of the temperatures, if you don't see any trouble, then you may not have trouble. You know, part of it is how warm are the nights, part of it is how many days in a row it's that hot, how many hours of the day it's that hot, all of those things kind of play into it. And it might Mm -hmm. be that you can just kind of take the edge off with just a little bit of Either shade cloth all day long or at least some afternoon shade might be another option. But that's, that's only if you see signs of stress. The shade cloth is really something I – I mean, I wasn't using shade cloth a whole lot in my like at-home practice. But now that I'm at, with the nursery and, I mean, the nursery is in the middle of a field. There's no trees draped over the um, any of the, the, the crops Quite that exposed. we're growing. It's very exposed. And so I'm like shade cloth, shade cloth. I'm like I'm trying different – percentages so we're doing 10 percent overall on most of the specimen trees it doesn't matter i mean the springtime i'll kind of move things around if something's not getting you know it's not getting vigorous enough for me but uh but yeah that, that timber that little tiny 10 percent goes a long way for us it, um, especially in the heat of our summer but it's still sweltering it's like walking into a sauna here most days in the middle of august um and i've found that uh going back to black pines that the 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 candles have almost gotten to the point now where they're not candles anymore. They're becoming almost like full on, just like a shoot now, like a branch. Um, and I had somebody at the, the, the past bonsai show that I did, I brought a few of those trees with me. Uh, they were on display slash you could purchase them. And the, uh, this one lady said, you should go ahead and cut those candles in half. Cause they're not candles anymore. Cause they had grown so fast. Um, so I guess that's the unfortunate thing of having such a strong, vigorous, uh, growth out of those trees, especially the way that the, I mean, it's like it's been cool, then hot, then cool. I guess that's kind of getting getting the, the, the vigor in those plants going really quickly. If you have vigor like that, then you have nothing to complain about. That's exactly what you want. <laughs> if the whole goal is thickening a trunk, the longer the candles, the more of them, that's just all feedback that you're doing something right. And there's no reason whatsoever to be breaking those candles or cutting those things off unless you are trying to either redirect growth or slow growth. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's positive. Cause for a second there, I was under the impression I was like, okay, this is too vigorous. But then it's like telling that to you and you're like, wait, what do you mean that that's not a bad thing? But, uh, but you know, if the goal is to make the trunk bigger than the longer you have to wait, the longer you have to wait. If you can take a shortcut, take the shortcut. Oh yeah. I, I wonder if I can, I, I could have decandled my pines way earlier. I'm just, Kind of think about that now. Probably don't want to decandle those younger pines if you're in crazy growth mode. And so in general, either you're going to be happy with the trunk size and you're working on the branches, that's where you decandle. And in general, if you're in trunk mode, you're not going to even consider decandling unless it's one of a couple very specific circumstances. Mm -hmm. I typically don't decandle a whole lot in the first 10 years of the tree's life.
This episode of Bonsai Southeast was brought to you by Underhill Bonsai, Louisiana's premier bonsai nursery, where we sell everything you could ever need for bonsai and distribute it to the Southeast range. We have everything as far as tools, wire, soil, fertilizers, pottery, and bonsai as far as pre-bonsai, more developed pieces, and even specimen bonsai. If you want to see what we have, you can check out our website at underhillbonsai.com, and it will link you to our web store, which is underhillbonsaistore.com. We also have a YouTube channel where you can watch our past third Thursday programs and let's get back to the conversation okay yeah and I remember I remember that kind of coming up too but uh something that we wanted to kind of touch about that Mark had mentioned was the hydroponics with black pines uh where did where'd you hear that from um it was on y'all podcast I couldn't remember which who said it but he, he just had a little setup I'm like Hey, you know. Yeah, but, uh, that's interesting because yeah, we're we're getting our greenhouse set up finally at the nursery. I mean, we could do a hydroponic system. So, like, what what's your experience with that? Is that something that's already happening, or is that new? So, good question. I don't have <laughs> direct experience with it, but I have a bunch of friends who are playing around with this stuff right now, and it's not straight hydroponic depending on how you think of hydroponic but they're doing a lot of soilless media where they are constantly uh, you know they're doing plants in 100 percent per light and they have fertilizer on the plants all the time and they're growing them in carbon dioxide tents and all of that just really boosts the growth i mean these people can grow in three four months a tree bigger than i can do in a year outside okay so it's just kind of keep an eye out for it. Um, and do you know who, who we should look at that's doing the hydroponics? Is there, is it? Oh gosh. Uh, there's a guy named Curtis who is on, I believe the uh, bonsai nut forum. Who's had a lot of suggestions for people and is, um, often on there. John Eads is the guy who was on the podcast talking about doing the same kind of thing where he has the seedlings growing in the carbon dioxide tents. And I've seen it actually worked on a couple of these young trees and it's just it's unbelievable to me how much growth you can get super duper fast. And it's just an awesome way to accelerate those early uh, stages of development. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm thinking back about different techniques with black pines. And uh, I actually took my first batch of seedling cuttings and put them in the mist house. Um, and I'm hoping for the best because I, I cut them last night and uh, me and me and Caitlin, my fiance, uh, you know, went, went at it and kind of, did about a hundred or so of them and came back this morning. Or I mean, more like this midday today to go put some other trees in the mist house that had, had to have some emergency repotting. Um, and my pines were kind of looking a little droopy and I, I don't know if that's just something that should just kind of wait and see. Uh, cause I was like, ah, this kind of happened to me last time I tried loblolly pines. Um, so if you're seeing droopy, then that means that either you cut the trees too late Mm. That would actually be the the main thing that comes to mind, and that you're trying to make the or there's too much light. That would be the other thing that will make them a little bit limp or kind of crinkly looking. Too too much light. That's something I didn't even think about. Yeah, meaning you, you don't want to just keep them in full sun after uh, making a a cutting from a seedling. That's going to be a little bit much. They do need light to stimulate the roots, but that's those are kind of your balance points. Um, how long a stem did you leave when you uh, made the cuttings? Quarter They're, inch, half inch, inch? They yeah, it's roughly about an about a half an inch. I would say nothing crazy. 
Uh-huh. And how long were the shoots? Like, were there a lot of juvenile needles coming out of the middle? Was there half an inch of growth, just three new needles somewhere in the middle? It was, it's kind of a little, bit, a little bit of a mixture, honestly. It was like, it was like some of them were longer than others, of course. And, and then, I mean, some of them were almost past that stage. Cause I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what fully to expect just yet. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just kind of see which ones work for me. Cause, um, because I mean, what could it hurt? Honestly, you know, just kind of going there and doing that. So I'll see what the success is, but yeah, the greenhouse, the, the mist house, it's, it's a greenhouse converted over into a mist house pretty much the netting there's no netting in there so it's just it's just kind of like that kind of broken up kind of light that would come through a just a regular kind of greenhouse structure it's got some shade on it from bamboo but we'll see i mean that's probably going to be fine uh how often is it being misted or what kind of a controller do you have for the mist it's it's one of those controllers that like it it collects moisture on it and it has like a paddle that kind of dips down and as soon as leaf it was that electronic leaf yeah um and see uh yeah somebody else had set it up uh it's not it's not my mist house it's like the nursery's mist house so i I think it's like best case scenario really for a for a mist house system so i at least i'll have that edge you know but uh well they're very adjustable in terms of how uh if you're seeing everything is sopping wet and it doesn't dry out in between you can just uh, adjust the paddle so it gets less frequent misting and if it's bone dry every time you go out there same thing you can adjust it the other way and it'll keep it a little wetter or if you don't have control over the mist settings maybe just moving to a different part of the greenhouse might be an option a spot that gets more light a spot that gets less light something like that mm-hmm. and uh i guess to kind of not leave the listeners in the dark here uh the reason why we would be taking these cuttings the, from seedlings like this is to get a perfect radial uh, root system, not perfect, but near perfect. Um, and you, like you've said in the past, almost too perfect sometimes because of how flat it can get. Um, and it can be almost unbelievable. Yeah, the idea is that you can remove the tap root and replace it with a number of horizontal roots. And you're pretty much always going to be finding it easier to work with multiple lateral roots than you are with a single tap root. Now, depending on the size tree you're making, it's not necessarily going to make a huge difference whether or not you go through that process. But it can make things a lot easier if you start with a lot of horizontal roots. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's one of my fears is that they'll come out just like real flat looking to the ground, which, I mean, as long as there's flare in the in the trunk, that, that should make up for it, like as long as there's some kind of size to them. But well, that's something to watch out for because depending on how you plant those roots later on, flat can actually creep upward. Sometimes when you pile fertilizer on the surface, the roots will grow up into that. And actually mm-hmm. the bottom of the trunk will be the low point of the roots and then they'll rise up and out from there. And that's exactly oh, no. what you don't, don't want. want. <laughs> Whereas uh, Eric Crater just did a cool video on uh, Bonsify. He's got a YouTube channel where he was showing putting the pine roots at quite a conical angle. And as those fusing come together, it'll actually make it seem like there's a much bigger uh, trunk than there is because you've got the roots already started in that right direction. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, I guess it's from so much internet exposure recently. There's a lot of weird techniques that I'm just starting to scratch the surface on. But yeah, I, if I can get the seedling cutting thing right, then hell, I might try all these other... <laughs> I was like, so, so like stand the roots up, like up purposely, just so you can counteract that, that weird kind of flaring up from the fertilizer, like you said, on the other sides. 
it's not counteracting as much. It's really kind of what your design for the tree going to look like and what is that transition from the trunk to the roots going to look like. Uh, I've done it a number of different ways over the years, and it's not good or bad as much as just different ways and different results. And so I recommend doing it different ways. So once these things start rooting and you're repotting the trees in a year or two, that's when you can start trying different angles and see what look works best for you. Then uh, the colander technique. I'm kind of scared to do it over here because it's so hot and it, the pots will dry out so quick. And uh, I mean, I'm going to experiment with a few of them. But Yeah, I, I feel you on that one. I grew deciduous trees in colanders for a number of years and I had to water two, three times a day and still a great technique, but it requires some attentiveness. Uh, two things you can do to help with that. One, use a larger colander, or two, use uh, soil particles that are smaller or hold more moisture, and that might help you out. You can also stack your colanders, one on top of another. You can stack a colander on top of a raised bed. You can stack a colander on top yeah. of a terracotta or plastic pot. So the yeah. nice thing about it is it is the most flexible approach because it lets you do all kinds of things to adjust the moisture during the growing season. Yeah, and you're the second uh, practitioner that we've talked to that has mentioned that stacking. Uh, we previously talked to Mike Lane about that, and he was like, yeah, if, if things get out of hand, with he, he works a lot of show heat. He's like, if, if things get out of hand, just put it in another pot, you know, and it'll kind of take care of itself from there, from the roots coming down into that next container. Um there's different ways of doing that, too. You can nest one pot inside another pot. That's been a very common technique over the years. But you can also just fill up a colander full of soil and then set the other colander on top of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you were saying if the roots escape from the first colander, you got to break all that up. That's know, right. Yeah, so just setting it on top seems like a better option. It seems like you get more bang for the buck that way. And I have not seen many people in this country do that. It, that one's, uh, I've seen less of that so far. And I'm, and I'm kind of thinking about, like you said, I could probably do a thing where I put it into a colander for the nursery's purpose, purposes and put it onto a mound in our grow field and just let things oh. go nuts there too. Um, right. Yeah. And if things are growing as fast as, as we have it down here, uh, I probably could go ahead and do that now, um, considering how fast our pines are growing. So it sounds like I got a little bit more work to do, but, uh, but, uh, I guess this, this podcast episode is just kind of going straight for Japanese black pine. Um, cause I mean, I get a lot of questions about them at the nursery too. And I mean, that's kind of why we're talking about it a little bit here, but uh, I mean, you kind of are, uh, one of the people that I look up to, to see how you're doing your black pines. So, uh, I guess this, this was a good, good topic for it, but, uh, but yeah, let's uh let's break into something else. Uh, as far as uh, have you heard? I mean, I'm kind of thinking about nationals this year. I've uh I've actually submitted a tree. Is there any? Are you going to be at nationals this year? Just just out. Of That's the plan. Yeah, because I saw you listed last year. Uh, and uh, do you normally submit anything to the nationals for yourself? Yeah. And so okay. I need – that's on my to-do list. That's probably on my calendar literally for today. I just – I have not yet done it. I need to do that. <laughs> I'm sorry to remind you of your your uh, your list of things to do. I mean I've got a encroaching en encroaching list of things to do as well. Uh, and so you said you were busy earlier. Like so what's going on for you right now as far as work? That's kind of what I'm interested in too. Uh, kind of approaching this, the, the nationals this is a weird time of year for it, but you got all these other things. So what's going on your side of the, uh, the United States over there? 
Well, in terms of bonsai work, I'm, wow, I'm still trying to catch up on my fall work for my pines, which is getting comedic because I'm probably going to start decandling in another couple of weeks. I've also started really getting into the deciduous work in earnest where I've been pruning, leaf pruning, um, defoliating the maples, hornbeam, different trees like that. And so it, at the end of the day, that's what I'll do as my reward is after dinner, I'll go back out to the workshop and um, actually, the last couple of days, I've watched friends do bonsai presentations, and I'll just sit around and uh, pluck away at a tree. So yesterday, I worked on, I cleaned suckers away from a chojubai, I leaf pruned a Japanese maple, and I did kind of some thinning on a uh, European hornbeam. Yeah, and I believe you just put a post on a European hornbeam, right? The Korean hornbeam I posted this morning, and then oh, okay. the very next day I worked on what's either an American or European hornbeam. I'm not sure which. I just got the tree this last fall. And so tree-wise, I'm doing that as well as just trying to keep on top of the fertilizing. I'm still behind in my fertilizing. I'll mm. say more about what I'm doing with the black pines. But then on top of that, just trying to keep up with the online store, I'm building a shed in the backyard, and I'm preparing for a pretty major uh, house remodel that's starting any day now. Oh, Awesome. Um, and so there's a lot of good bone side things happening. So are you, how, what is your, what is your setup like as far as, uh, as far as bone side goes? I mean, is, is it like a complete dedication backyard space to it? Yep. And yeah. Wall to wall. It's about a 40 by 50 foot space or is it 50 by 60? It's not too big, just a big square plot, lots of sun. And it's mostly four foot wide benches, a number of trees sitting on the ground and, that's it. It's all constrained in that one tiny spot, jam-packed with hundreds of little trees. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I, I think I had heard on a previous episode of y'all's podcast, you talking about how there's just enough room for you just to kind of maneuver your way through the benches to do your, your casual work through there. Um, so if this is – you're tr like a true backyard grower when it comes to bonsai with this kind of stuff. Heartbreakingly, yes. I've, I've wanted more space for 20 years, but yeah, I'm 100% in the backyard right now. And so my goal is to do a little bit less propagation. I've got a few friends who are firing up growing operations these days, kind of like you are. And I'm really excited to have more and more people growing material. And that way, I won't have to do 100% of the process. I can start at different points along the way, or at least recommend people just starting out, go to some of these growers so they can find uh, great starting points for their own collections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like the 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 growers out there, like the, your backyard growers or your field, field growers, um, we don't have a terrible amount of them here. We have, I, I can only think of like a few on hand. But uh, but it, I guess people are getting back into it. I guess it could be bl not not blamed on the pandemic, but uh, I've I've heard a lot of people getting back into uh, like I heard about Randy Knight on a, another podcast talking about yep, how yeah. he's getting back into field growing again, and he was one of the better better uh, field growers when it came to that, and he'd been doing it for a while too. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I saw his. Uh the final days actually i visited his uh, the last time he had trees in the ground i got to visit right before he moved out of that spot mm. and so yeah it was cool he had all kinds of trees out there but yeah all over the country i know small numbers of growers were on the early stages of that arc and so i think in two three years we're actually going to have a lot more material available but everyone is in just such early stages these days that's that's honestly really exciting because i mean I mean, that's great. 
for some reason or another, it seems like down in Southeast, it's very pr- predominantly like Yamadori, like go get the trees kind of kind of mentality here. And, That's the whole uh, country. Yeah. Uh, and okay, so it's not just me. So it's not just uh, my most popular class or workshop is teaching people how to go collect bald cypress trees. Uh, so, I mean, it's I, I feel like there needs to be more backyard growers for sure. Um, I'm just... I don't know how to tell people that or encourage people to do that. Um, but I have every once in a while I have people come in and say, Oh, I want to pop this trident maple in the ground. What do I, what am I needing to expect from this? Or, but I'm not hearing anyone go and, you know, a whole field that's so they can offer it back up to the community again. So, well, I guess we'll see where it goes as far as the Southeast goes, but it's cool to hear that's actually starting to take on other places. Um, Yeah, definitely. And not everyone needs to grow. We just need more because there's just such great demand and excitement for material these days. So the more people growing, the better. It's I find it a lot of fun. And so if you do a good job and demonstrate to people that you're growing plants that they want, that's going to be the number one thing you can do to encourage it. And yeah, that takes time. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I guess we're we're just going to keep looking forward to the more available uh, better material coming up, but, uh, but yeah, so we, we kind of talk more about natives too on this podcast. And I don't know, cause you mentioned earlier, it's not so native heavy where you're at as far as your collection or trees that y'all deal with. The natives I probably have the most of is I'm getting more and more redwoods and coast live oaks. Those are probably the two native species I have the most of right now. Okay. Um, would you, be in favor of one over the other or because that was one of my questions for you is was like what is your favorite north north american native and i guess if you're only dealing with those two i mean or is there another one you wish you could work with i guess too is the question you know i find that so many species have their charms and i love lots of things about lots of species some of them i love to see in shows and i don't necessarily like working with them as much others maybe i'd love to work on them but we don't have the climate for it and i'm kind of okay with that and so it's less more and less favorite as much as um, I'm glad that we've got such diversity. I know that we've given a far stronger look at America's conifers than we have at deciduous species. Um, So I'm hopeful that there will be a lot more discovery and development in terms of what we can do with our deciduous available uh, material. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there anything up there that you're kind of, kind of, peeping at now that you're like, maybe I can start pulling these or start propagating these as far as, is there any kind of natives that y'all can, you can think of offhand? You know, it would have to be propagate from scratch. And what's funny is then whether or not we have the climate for it becomes the big question. It would have to be something really hardy that can grow in a lot of different environments. Cause you know, what do we have naturally here? We have oak trees and that's pretty much it. And then you have specific environments where the redwoods grow. So I can mm-hmm. grow redwoods where I am, but they aren't native to precisely where I am. And boy, that's about it. I mean, it's just California is a brown desert state, and oh, at least in a, in our part <laughs> of the state. So then you get up into the foothills and that's where you get a lot more deciduous species mm-hmm. where we have. Uh, but the temperatures are a lot hotter out there in summer and a lot colder in winter, whereas it's very mild where I am year round. And uh, so what's the, what is the scientific name for the coastal oak you know what that is yeah quercus agrifolia okay because we have the live oak which is over here in like the more southeastern range is the corgus uh virginiana 
Um, and people get that confused a lot with the coastal oak versus the live oak of the southeast coast. Um, and so that's actually a species I'm kind of jealous of because I get that question day in, day out about when people call up and they're like, they think it's a romantic thought of having that live oak bonsai tree. And I have to explain to them, like, you're seeing coastal oaks. And uh, that's, one, that's one species I'm envious of that you get to work with. Circus. Yeah. And, and well, you can, I know that, uh, well, I remember seeing oaks all over down your way, like all throughout um, Texas and in Houston. And I remember in, uh, around Lake Charles, like just all kinds of wonderful live oaks down there. And those I'd expect to be just fantastic species for bonsai. Yeah. And I'm not saying that live oak that wouldn't make a great species for bonsai. It's just, I don't know how long I would have to expect for, you know, especially if I'm starting from scratch or if I'm going to collect one, because you don't just go and find a live oak in a collectible size. And also if you're going to grow them, they're notorious for growing slow. Um, and so that's kind of what we're dealing with, with the live oaks. Depends on the size. If you want to make a small tree, they actually grow surprisingly fast. And in terms of collecting, there's a lot of hills out and about. And if, if you can find a spot where there's a ton of native oaks, you might be able to find some collectible locations. Now, that said, I don't know people that have done a lot of collecting or searching for that. Um, I would probably want to check in with some of the folks in uh, various clubs in Texas that do a ton of collecting and see if they've had any insight to that. Um, but I know that the most common species that I've seen come out of the ground is uh, the cedar elm. And that's another fantastic species for bonsai that I know is, uh, would probably do well where you are. Yeah. Um, we have quite a few cedar elm growing in our grow fields right now at the nursery. So, yeah, nice. we're, we're very familiar with them. They do occur a little bit more in Texas than where we're at and a little bit more northern Louisiana. Uh, we have a lot of the Yuma Salata, the uh, winged elm here. Um, yeah. it's, kind of like our, it's kind of like our cedar elm uh, counterpart. It's not I've, – I've been kind of – throwing it back and forth with like the American elm kind of feel, it feels more like an American elm than it does a cedar elm. Um, well, I mean like as far as it's the way it appears and its growth habit goes. Well, uh, they're very trainable trees. They're very, very hardy. And if you can ever collect some, that might be a nice head start because I think that there's good potential in among winged elm bonsai. Oh yeah. That's, that's what I submitted to nationals was a collective. Oh, cool. So yeah, I'm very familiar with them. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's, that's kind of what we're concentrating that, and that's why I was kind of going into it a little bit with like the native thing because that's what we really concentrate on with our nursery at least. Uh, and there's a lot of southeastern uh, deciduous species that I really mess with here. Um, and that's why I was kind of like, what do you guys got up there? But um, the coastal oak, I mean, that's that's a great looking tree there. Um, but the the other corgus species, I guess, like uh, water oak, and we've got a white. White, white oaks. Oak, oak. Yeah. I'm sure y'all got like a mountain white oak near right. y'all, which is a little bit different. The ones that we have all over California would be the valley oak and the blue oak. Those okay. are really common ones. But again, they, they want a lot more heat than I can offer them, so they don't do as well right where I live. Okay. Yeah, because I had taken a trip to Mexico, New Mexico, and there was a lot of this, this white oak there that was like, it was a lot smaller leaf, and they was calling it the mountain yeah. white oak. And it just looked like an awesome species. Um, made me a little jealous because our white oaks in the here, the leaves get massive, like as big as your head uh, sometimes. So, but No, those mountain white oaks are great. They're a uh, shrubbier tree. And if you can find one with the right trunk, those, again, seem like they'd make fantastic bonsai. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, the uh, as far as uh, 
as far as like the show that I remember hearing about you guys organizing a show. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Eric Schrader and I are looking to host a big show next fall, so uh, about a year and a half from now. Okay, and and y'all, I remember y'all talked about that in y'all's episode on it about organizing that show and how how's it been? Has it been going? Have y'all had a lot of people submit to that show or? So we're going to be opening up submissions a year from now, pretty much. Oh, wow. so, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we got a ways to go. It'll be November of 2022, so we've got a little bit of time yet. Okay, and. Uh, and what kind of goes into the, the planning with that? Like, is it, oh, gosh. it's, oh, it's a lot more. Yeah. So it's like the venue, of course, is the top thing. Um, yeah. Cause uh, you got to make sure that's, that's accessible. And it, at least there's a major airport in that, that area too, right? Three um, of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if people are flying in trees, you, you think pe- people are going to be more prone to fly in trees or drive in trees? I'm sure. expecting the bulk of the trees to be relatively local. How much draw there is from outside the area totally remains to be seen. I've heard from people all up and down the West Coast, but I haven't heard from the middle of the country yet. So I just don't know. We don't have an expectation one way or the other about how trees would be coming in. But I would assume they would all be driven in, just like for the national. Yeah, because, I mean— as far as going to nationals this year, we're going to be taking a trip, 20-hour trek that direction. Um, and how how far is it for you to Rochester? About double that. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and you make that drive? Yeah, uh, it's 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 great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and that drive takes, I'm sure, it takes a little bit of strategic planning to get, because you bring a lot of plant material, not just the tree you're going to show or a couple of trees you might show, but you're a vendor there too, so you're. You're trucking other things as well. I mean, do you have like a rig or something? Yeah, it's usually a 16-foot truck and just jam-packed with one or two levels of trees. It's it's a lot. I may or may not bend this year, but I I do plan to deliver a number of trees this year. So Uh, the the plan is still going ahead for the show. It looks like it's all going to happen, and people are getting excited, and they've been more and more starting to reach out to me lately to drive more trees. So the next couple months, I'll hopefully have a tree picked out for the show, and I'll have a much better idea about uh, what size truck I'm going to need and what all I'll be bringing with me. So you uh, you you offer the service to bring other people's trees for them, basically. Um, yeah. If they can bring the tree to my garden about a month ahead of time, and that way I can prepare the proper paperwork for getting the trees back into California. Interestingly, uh, the most major hurdle, getting from here to New York and back to Nevada is not a problem. It's getting from Nevada to California that requires paperwork. Yeah. I've actually shipped a couple of bald cypresses to California, and it's the only state that I've had to have special paperwork just to get to you, get trees to you guys, which is, I mean, it, I know it has to do with, uh, I don't know what, it's just nematodes or in kind of... Oh, well, one way to think of it is think of the size of California's agriculture and forestry industries. And on a global scale, at least the agriculture is significant and that there are a lot of protections in place for those um, industries. Okay, so it it doesn't even matter that it's a potted plant or a bonsai tree or anything. It's just has to do with that. The regulation of that. Yeah, there's a lot of regulations that involve things coming in or out of the state, and that's everything from fruit to sandwich meat to live <laughs> plants to cut wood. You know, it's all all of the above have their own restrictions. I see that when I'm shopping online for for trees or plants in general, it says cannot ship to California. I saw it just this morning. Yeah, I see that yeah. all the time. <laughs> that's unfortunate, but 
Uh, but I still do get a lot of people interested in uh, it, and it's mostly bald cypresses that they want shipped over. I've shipped nice. like three to California thus far. Um, that's and that's kind of like a there's been a spike in popularity, uh, and I think it might be from from like Ryan using bald cypresses so often. Uh, not spice me at all, and they grow well in most parts of California. I don't see a ton of them, but I from what I've seen, they grow just fine out here. Okay, I mean, we were talking about the refrigerator plan for the reverse of trying to get a good dormancy, but the bald cypress is not worried too much about a long dormancy. So what what kind of challenges do you think you would have if you if you really wanted a bald cypress in your collection? What what do you think you would need to do? I don't know of any roadblocks. I think it would uh, just pick one up and start watering it. I, 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 don't <laughs> think, I, I can't think of any obvious challenges I'd have to them because the ones I have seen and worked on around here seem to do pretty darn well. Oh, okay. So you have seen them a good bit out there then. Oh, yeah. awesome. All right, because I, I I try I try to explain when I when I do talk about the species in length about what they're capable of doing, um, their their range is a lot broader than you would assume. They can grow. I've I've heard of them growing in the UK, like which is completely and it's like a different world to us really. But you know, um, but that's that's pretty awesome to hear that they're doing well in even Northern California like that. That's really cool. Yeah, and again, I don't see a lot. I see them in the landscape occasionally, and once in a while is bonsai. But uh, uh, people bring them to workshops here and there. But I've, I've not seen anything that makes me um, think that they would be a good fit. And yeah. but it's funny you mention that in terms of the show prep. I don't know of any show-ready bald cypress in the area that people might want to bring. Maybe we'll need to get a couple from further away for the show next year. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like no. There's like no pressure over here, right? But. Uh, but we, we have a couple of bald cypresses in our collection here at the nursery, I think. I don't know, man. Uh, that's that's where I'm kind of like throwing it back and forth. Like, do we talk about flat top bald cypress design when it comes to that? Are you familiar with that? I'm sure you've seen a yeah. handful of them, being the Texas yeah. shows. Um, what is – so, yeah, that, I guess that's that's kind of – I don't want to press too hard on it, but bald cypress comes up a lot. Um, that's, that's, uh, what do you think about the flat top form? Do you think it's kind of pushing the envelope too much for the traditionalist out there or, or how do you feel about it? Well, I kind of love the topic and I, the same kind of topic comes up with redwoods a lot. What I often tell people when they're working on trees is I like it when there's a good story for the tree and I don't care what the story is, but I want it to have its own internal logic. I want it to be kind of consistent. And so if you want to tell a story that represents a bald cypress in a certain form, I say, have at it. I will do everything I can to help you realize the story you want to portray or make that story as compelling as possible. What I want to do is get out and see more bald cypress down in your area. You know, I've driven kind of from Baton Rouge to New Orleans several times, and pretty much every single bald cypress you pass along the Ponchard train looks exactly the same, and they're not flat tops. And so I would that they look younger. They don't have as much of the character we see in the bonsai. I would love to get off the beaten track to start seeing some of these other forms that the species can take. Yeah. Um, I can think of dozens of places that if you were ever swing by this area, it would blow your mind of how much variance there is. And that flat top form is not just like the, you can see our logo in the back. It's kind of, it, it might, I don't know if it's, I'm new to this. I don't know if it's inverted for you. I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, um, this is actually from an old ABS journal, this, this image. 
Um, and I found it in a, it was a 1990 issue and it was a flat top design. And I was like, what? That's so people were thinking about it, but, um, it obviously had already existed because, uh, I'm sure you might have heard the name every once in a while, Von, Von Banting from the Northern area. One, one name I associate with it. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, it's a school, I, I call it his school of thought when you think about the types of flat top forms, but yeah, we can show you in nature all the extreme cases for, that flat top form, it might be affected by storms, it might be affected by lightning strike or brackish water or nature or human inter intervention. There's all kinds of different versions of that. And I I haven't seen a flat top in nationals. I mean, I haven't looked at very many nationals uh, catalogs. I've I've got a good friend, uh, Dawn, Dawn Ketting, that's submitted a few times. Oh, She's yeah. got some of the backlogs of it. Uh, she's got the it's almost like a yearbook with all the trees in it. I, I love the way that's done. And I um, look through those and I don't see a lot. I just see a lot of more traditional shaped bald cypresses. I yeah. So have you seen any flat tops in your times going there? Or, or is that? My memory, yeah, I don't have the whole catalogs memorized. I've got all the books, but I need to flip through to check out. Uh, because I don't see bald cypress a lot, I don't think about it as much. But I know that what's funny is the one form of bald cypress I would love to see as bonsai is when I've seen pictures of the absolute oldest, funkiest bald cypress, mm. they have neither straight trunks nor uh, flat tops. They're just kind of these, I could name a lot of other species they look like, but far rounder crowns, deep asymmetry, just funky, kind of half fallen down things, but really, really old looking, huge trunks. I would love to see uh, some of those forms someday. But see, all of this kind of gets at what are we picking for our models? Uh, a lot of people will say, oh, well, that's how it grows in nature. And so then we can ask questions like, is our job to miniaturize what we see in nature or is to do an artful play on it? Uh, the other thing is there's a lot of ugly things in nature and do we want to find ugly models, beautiful models, compelling models, or really specific models for our trees? Well, we all like different things. And so we see all of those different options. And that's why it's fun to see great diversity of styles of any species. Yeah. I mean, there's the other style. I don't, I, I don't know what's the name for it. The, the tree gets big, the top falls off and it splits off. Oh, uh, uh, Can candelabra yeah, style? Yeah. yeah. I can't ever remember. <laughs> candelabra is... We've been, we've been seeing a lot more of that. That's really is great. kind of refreshing because you said you would like to see more of the... The uh, way that they actually, yeah. actually are uh, affected by, by the environment here. Yeah. We see a lot of candelabra style bald cypresses, and I actually have a few pieces set to the side. Uh, unfortunate Yamadori collection, collected trees that have just died back to the base and sucker from the bottom. Um, and yeah, we're going to do some of those for sure. Cause I don't see nice. anybody do that. Um, I've seen people do Candelabra, I'm getting a tongue tied on it, uh, tongue twisted on it, but uh, I've seen a lot of that style in coastal redwood, uh, which I think is really cool because that's kind of tell, like you said, telling the story. It tells the story of the, I feel like of the old growth, uh, almost like the, the uh, what is that? Oh man, the mother logs, kind of like the logs that yes. where the trees have the seeds have fallen into that log and have you can see the obvious wrapping of the the roots over the old growth. One uh, of the most common patterns for redwood is where there'll be an absolutely enormous tree that dies, and then a bunch of shoots will come out in circles, and I think they call them fairy circles, and where you'll see a ring of youngish redwoods growing around a crater, more or less, and that's probably the most identifiable form when you're walking around a redwood forest. And so I, I look forward to seeing more of that. But 
the reason I mentioned redwoods as a good example for the topic is half of the redwoods, actually not even half, some of the redwoods we see styled look like redwood trees. They're tall and slender, but far more of them are shaped like bonsai. And by bonsai, it either is a short, stubby tree, like just imagine the bottom foot of the logo behind you where you've got really yeah, fast, fast taper, or you've, got a, <laughs> right, or you've got a complete deadwood form where it's like a juniper, uh, you know, more of a driftwood style. And that's probably the most common style of redwood bonsai uh, that nobody really associates actual redwoods in nature with that form. But it just goes to show that we can make really compelling artworks based on that medium of the sequoia species. And so it's I think there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a great example of how much is going into our aesthetic decisions when we pick our models for what these trees are going to look like. That's that's interesting because uh, like you're talking about the ones, the redwoods that look like little fat, almost like a uh, like a shoheen style kind of twisted little trunk it's got a lot of deadwood in it but there's an obvious there was like an old existing flare where i guess are those trees coming i don't know if that's like a backyard growing process or if that, those trees are being peeled off the side of like of slightly old like older trees like uh, how they do olives uh and stuff like that so to to do a tree that looks just like your logo and for those who can't see that a tall slender tree but with quite a bunch of flaring at the base, which is really evocative of the bald cypress style. That's actually how really young redwoods grow. And so when you see a skinny redwood, maybe two inches across, sticking up out of the ground, if you dig down a foot or two, you'll find they very often swell right at the base of the roots. And so one reason we find a lot of those is that the collectors have dug up these and it's like, hey, ready-made bonsai, why fight it? And then can you cut them, uh, redwoods, can you cut them without having any foliage on them are they are they just true conifer it's they're interesting they're way more flexible than most conifers it's funny you say that i just picked up a few redwoods last week from uh bob scheinman mendocino coast bonsai which is where most redwood bonsai come from that i know of in this country and i repotted some of the trees and one of them had absolutely no roots at all it was just kind of sawed off and it was just covered with buds popping out but Mm. it had yet to really put out roots and so i'm really uh looking forward to finding some signs that the tree's rooting into the new soil <laughs> just kind of sit and wait but i mean they, they could be great trees though uh, oh yeah uh, and that i like i really like to hear uh i don't get to talk to people about redwoods very often um and i've only seen one in person just recently uh dawn actually bought one from somebody uh from y'all's part of of town and i was like that's really cool but it's one of those little short stubby ones that we talked about how i was like how do you get that and it's obviously it's a lot easier than i assumed uh not easy per se oh no it's easy you just dig them up oh okay it's like pulling a turnip up and you're like oh there's the there's the fat trunk base that i like the trick is just buying one that has buds where you want it because it's really hard to make them bud if they aren't wanting to bud in a certain spot so you tend to look for trees that have the buds you need to start the primary branches cut everything Mm -hmm. off and grow all the branches from scratch and it doesn't take that long Uh, people are going to find that they're a lot easier to train when you know kind of the few tricks to it. And there's a very small number of tricks, but it's a lot harder without those tricks. It's, uh, I like hearing that too, because we, we both should, we probably know that they're both taxodiums. And so the way that the bald cypress looks, it's, it, 
I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to like this kind of stuff. And we all are. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a bonsai nerd kind of person. To hear that young redwoods pop up just like the bald cypress, like you had said in the image behind us, um, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. I did not know that. Um, and that's. I mean, that's why we're having these conversations too. <laughs> but uh, just knowing the the family that they're in, the you know taxodium family, that's pretty cool. But uh, that's why I was wondering, like, because we can totally chop our bald cypress back. Um, but the redwood has to have those low existing buds already basically going on before you make that kind of cut. That's, that's what I'm assuming now. Yeah, you can make cuts and you can be pretty aggressive with those cuts, but depending on the circumstances, you want to make sure it's going to pop some buds where you want them. Um, in most cases, it's just not an issue. It's more of an issue if someone's already collected the tree and it's grown up and it might be two, three feet tall and you've got big gaps between the branches along the trunk, it's hard to expect new branches to grow to fill in those gaps. And a number of us are experimenting and trying to find out how can we push those? Can we create wounds? Can we, you know, what can we do? And I have yet to find any answers, but I've tried making wounds. I've tried stripping bark away and have yet to come up with a repeatable process for doing that. It's been more hit and miss so far. But I think they come along really, really quickly, and it really comes down to the various pinching techniques used for them. But they can be probably some of the fastest growers in the entire garden, and that's what makes them so fast to develop. I'm kind of itching to get myself one. I did find somebody who had one for sale, and I'm just like, do I do I bite the bullet and just accept it for what it is? Because, I mean, I can't just go out and readily get one like I can a cypress here. It's just like I understand. Um, I know what it's like to grow uh you know, with, and kind of, kind of wheel and deal with the bonsai collected material or grow, or field grown stuff. I'm just, but I, I might, I might try my, my hand at the coastal redwood. I mean, why not? You know, um, but I'm going to ask Dawn because she's on, she's in Thibodeau, which is even further South than we are right now. I mean, it's, well, it's not that far, but it's like another, what? Another... Um, it's about lateral. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I keep, I keep forgetting exactly where we're at because I don't, oh, I don't almost in a gulf. Yeah, we're we're pretty much almost in the we're golf. We're on that little toe that comes off Louisiana right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm a North Shore guy. I've been I've been on the north side of the lake so often. That's why I'm kind of like, where am I right now? But you know, I just know that down here it's a it's a little bit different in grow, growing environment. So so that's why I'm like, if it works for Dawn, it works for me. That's how I looked at it with the black pines. I was like, if it works for Dawn and she's in like an adverse version of what we we have. I mean, she wakes up and the humidity is so ridiculous down there everything's just dripping and the, and it's you know blue skies everything's just dripping with humidity though so and i know black pine's biggest downfall like we've talked about in the past is overwatering sometimes with that in this environment so um so, so we'll there a lot of the places they're native to in japan are wicked hot and humid and so they definitely can do well you just want to make sure that the roots don't stay too wet and uh that if you do have a lot of uh, fungus issues, that you're really on top of uh, your sprays. Yeah, this was a, a very compelling conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us, Jonas. Uh, and I was going to step into the next part of uh, our, another segment that we're doing for our, our podcast, uh, because it's a it's a more of a beginner's podcast. We want to make sure that the listeners out there can uh, submit questions. So we do have a little bit of like a question uh, segment, cool. segment we're, we're going to do. Um but before we get into that, uh, we just wanted to let everybody know how to like see your content. I mean, you're you've been in the game for a while, uh, so kind of tell us 
how, tell listeners how to how to find you because there's still people discovering bonsai now and they might be listening to this first time and not know who you are so how they find you you can just search for Jonas and Bonsai, and you'll probably find me. The website is bonsai tonight, t o n i g h t dot com, and uh, you can pretty much link to whatever I have available right there. Um, and so, I mean, follow you on Instagram, on Facebook, and all that good stuff. I mean, but- yeah, I think the website will link to an Instagram account, which is also bonsai tonight. If you're at a bookstore, you can find my book, which came out about a year ago, the Little Book of Bonsai, and uh, also on Facebook as well at bonsai tonight. Yeah, and I highly, I highly recommend to the listeners that little book of bonsai. I mean, I sell it at the shop. It's a great. It, I mean, it's it's an easy book to to pick up. The photography is beautiful in it. That's why I always kind of tell people is like, even if you don't read this book all the way through, at least you can look at the the pictures. I mean, the pictures in that book are great. Um, and I remember your, I'm, you had mentioned that it's like a lot of a lot of people's collections that you that you know, and some of your own trees in there. They're just just phenomenal pictures in that book. It looks good. Yeah, they hired the publisher found a fantastic photographer and he did an amazing job and so I'm really happy with how the pictures came out. I think it's I think it's uh probably a probably on the top tier of like beginner's books for me for bonsai. Like it's just it's easy to just give that to someone and say just just read it through. You know, you don't have to you don't have to consume this on a highly technical level. It's it's right at that that perfect beginner's point too where you could take it to that next point pretty easily. So, and that's yeah. the goal. The goal is to help people keep one or two trees alive, since that's a really common thing where people yeah. have a tree, they don't know how to keep it alive. If you want to learn more to do that and you can keep it alive, great. You've already graduated to the next book. Yeah. that's. <laughs> and, I, and I say, uh, people are like, where do I start? And I'm like, buy a tree, but buy quite a few of them because, I mean, you might be really attached to this one, but just give yourself some time. You'll, you'll figure out what I mean. Uh, so... Buy, buy a couple of different trees and a different couple of different species and see what really works for you. Because, I mean, last thing I want is somebody disheartened because they killed a, you know, a black pine or a juniper that they, you know, they could have otherwise used something like an elm or a bald cypress in our range and had a much better, much better ease into it. So, but yeah, that's a, that's a good recommendation for it. But uh, yeah, we do have a couple of listener questions. Um, and they're going to be pretty straightforward. Uh, this comes from a guy named Chris. He's a, a regular at our nursery, actually, too. Uh, his couple of simple questions. Uh, number one, how long should I let branches grow out on my trees before trimming them back? This is this is very uh, John Naka bonsai techniques one right here, if I were to say. Uh, so, What does John Naka recommend, then? Uh, as far as I can remember from, from the way that it is, it's, it's you're supposed to grow them out to... The extent where you can get the proper taper according to its location on the tree, um, and so and you always want to you always want to grow to an extent where you, where you cut back you can easily feed into the next tapering uh, shoot on that branch. So I mean you're gonna have a sacrificial part of your branch even, um, and I mean I'm kind of beating around the around the bush that he would have said it the way he would have said it honestly. Uh, but yeah, what what's your kind of like your best advice on that? technique if you're growing a tree from scratch and you're developing primary branches you make that cut once the branch makes reaches the desired thickness so let's say you're growing a bald cypress you're working on the very first primary branch you just let that thing go two three four five feet long if you have to when it gets as thick as you want it to be cut that all the way back and then you start growing out the next section yep Um, and I, and I normally tell people, and that, that was the, that was the key word I missed on my explanation, I guess, was 
thickness of the branch. You got to get the thickness okay. first in it, and then you can cut back. And I always, I always like to add that little uh, little thing at the end of explanation is to point the tip up towards the sun because that'll be its best chance for becoming vigorous. Because I've seen a lot of branches wired out, and they're like, I want this to be my number one branch, but it's still either covered up by the the branches above or you, you yeah you know where i'm going yeah. with that so it, it needs the most important amount of light and i mean it's and it doesn't need any pinching or anything it's just going to be purely sacrificial which is another kind of weird concept for beginners to wrap around their head around as a sacrificial branch um that's been a difficult thing for me and i guess that is uh talk about uh kind of like sacrificial branches in your insight like how what do you how would you explain it to a beginner yeah, I, I agree. It's a really hard thing to kind of get people's heads around that. The definition is very simple. It's a branch that you're growing for some purpose other than having that branch when you're done with the tree. Maybe you're going to, by letting that branch grow, it might help you heal a wound or thicken up a trunk or just thicken up the base of the branch. But uh, a lot of people think you start with a seed and then you start with a mini bonsai and every year for the next 20 years, it looks like a slightly bigger bonsai. And in general, we find it's a lot more effective to put them through these really awkward teenage years to get the trunk the right size, to get the branches the right size. And our primary vehicle for building trunks from scratch is those sacrifice branches. Yeah. And that kind of, I think that is a good way to go about that, answering that question. I think it's just understanding the sacrifice branch method for that, for building out those branches. And when you get to that trunk or even the, the thickness of your branch too, that's a good way to think of it. And so for Chris's question, if you're trying to thicken that branch, then you're really, your criteria for when you cut is to be measuring kind of how thick it is. Let's say you've got a more refined elm of some sort, when do you want to prune it? And that's going to depend on what level of refinement the tree's at. It could be that you're looking to kind of bifurcate or make one branch split into two up near the top of the tree. And in that case, you're often going to let the tree grow for uh, two, three, four inches and then cut it back and just keep maybe a quarter inch to a half an inch, something like that. By letting it grow out a little bit before you cut it back, it increases the odds that multiple buds will pop and you'll get that bifurcation up near the top. That's an excellent point for so that. So two very different approaches depending on where the branch is on the tree or uh, what, kind of what you're working on. Yeah, just know where you're at as far as development. Is the, That's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he had a second question uh, is, what is the benefit of using a grow pot that is made out of wood? Um, and I've told people that uh, from the, some of the obvious things, there, there's going to be areas in where you – you build your grow, yeah, we're grow a busy box. Group. So there's going to be air, more air spaces available in if you had used a plastic container. Also, uh, wood would would also kind of it can kind of uh, work better with soil medias as far as back, like building beneficial bacteria. Um, and I mean, as and also your wood box is very versatile. You can build it in different sizes and different parameters, and um, and you can. You can do a colander style if you want. You can have a completely meshed bottom, almost like a Anderson flat style at the bottom, or even have slats on the sides to kind of help you do uh, uh, the natural air layering of roots as well. Uh, that then that's my take on it. Uh, that's a fantastic take. The number one benefit for me is you can create the size and shape that you want. And so, if you're trying to develop a really strong root base, say, on a deciduous tree, it's perfect for coming up with the exact right size. If you have a collected tree, whether a collected boxwood from your neighbor's hedge or some kind of tree right out of the swamp, 
you can make that box the precise size you're, you need really to keep those roots happy. Uh, the other benefits you also mentioned, which are, you know, you get less circling roots than you do in plastic. You can encourage more aeration than you would in plastic. And so uh, they are, and they're also a lot sturdier than a lot of flimsy plastic pots. So uh, wood pots will always have a great role in the bonsai world. Yeah. And I, I try to encourage more use of just your cedar board or pine bark. I mean, not pine bark, <laughs> pine board built boxes. Yeah. Uh, be, because like, that's that's one thing I have an issue with, with the plastic containers, even the, the really great uh, training plastic pots that we get. It, they do get flimsy, they do dry rot, um, and that, that will lead to some issues. And even the weight, I find the weight, a different weight for the plastic versus the wood. The wind will blow over your plastic growing yeah. growing pot container uh and if you're and if you're growing at your top and you've got a lot of like wind sail going action going on, on the top of the tree it's just so much more prone whereas with the wood box you can even screw that sucker down to the the workbench and you'll have no issues with it it's just yeah the wood the wood growing box is a very versatile tool for bonsai um and like you said uh we should see more of it honestly so yep totally but, uh, agree they're great yeah but uh Anyway, so if you if anybody else is that's listening would like to have uh, questions answered by me and Mark or Nate or any guests uh, like like Jonas here, uh, you can submit those questions to our Instagram page. Uh, it's going to be Boneside Southeast Podcast. Uh, the Instagram page will be up and created very uh, very soon here, so those questions can be submitted there. Or if you want to submit them to me uh, to my personal email, it's going to be Evan at UnderhillBoneside.com. But I do appreciate the two questions that we did get. But uh, yeah, thanks for uh, joining us, Jonas, and uh, and taking the time to talk on our, our cast. And I would encourage people to go listen to uh, Boneside Wire, your podcast as well. It's excellent, um, and you have. Uh, you've had a couple of really great guests on your show too. Uh, so like I told you, uh, I think I'd mentioned it too. I was like, your podcast is basically like my talk radio. And I was like looking for more of that, more stuff like that. And that's, that kind of inspired me to do this podcast too. So yeah, I really appreciate what you've done awesome. with your, uh, with your cast. That's all I've been listening to the last two weeks. Yeah. It's good. Good <laughs> content, man. Good content. We just recorded a new episode yesterday. That'll be coming out soon. And, uh, I know we've got a couple more lined up. We've been horribly not on top of new episodes, uh, this year so far, but there's a chance that we'll be actually stepping that up a little bit coming up soon. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can believe that it has something to relate to the springtime and also being behind on bonsai work as well, uh, making it challenging to record podcast episodes or even, you know, any other type of things that are on the outside.